You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tuse, and today I'll be speaking with author Amy Runyon about her new book, A Bakery in Paris. Amy's an adjunct instructor for the Drexel University MFA program in creative writing and, more importantly, a passionate baker. She's been nominated for a Rocky Mountain Fiction Writer of the Year Award and three Colorado Book Awards. Welcome to the show, Amy. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. All right, so before we talk about your new book, let me ask you, since you write historical fiction, what makes for good historical fiction? Um, it's always the same as any other novel. It may, it's um, the origin of a good story, and finding the stories in you know del- that are steeped in our history that um, will you know that lend itself well to novelization. And of course, sometimes um, that's where you know historical fiction takes uh, uh, takes shape. Is that we are able to take stories and modify them so that the pacing works in the course of a novel, but finding something that the modern reader can really resonate with in the course of our history and making history relevant to today is what I think makes for good historical fiction. Okay. Well, one of the questions that I'm always curious about when I read historical fiction, and I read A Bakery in Paris and and really enjoyed it, is how much, how do you know how much history to put in the book without distracting from the, the narrative? Well, as you can imagine, I love food metaphors, so I'm going to use one now. It's um, If you're cooking, I liken it to using garlic. <laughs> garlic is wonderful, and you enjoy it when it's well mixed out through, throughout the story. But if you get a big chunk of it in, the, in any one bite of the dish, it's overpowering. And so you have to use your history uh, knowledge like you do garlic. You have to use a steady hand. Um, and mix it in finely so that it doesn't overpower the dish as a whole. So I find that, you know, if anything that's slowing down the momentum of the story generally needs to be whittled down quite a bit. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about the new book, A Bakery in Paris. So the book moves between two different time periods, 1870 and 1946, if I recall correctly. Basically, the Franco-Prussian War and then post-World War II period. What, yes. what is the difficulty as a writer when you are using dual narratives like that? Well, making the two stories <clears throat> mesh together is hard. And, you know, I threw myself an extra monkey wrench in this one because I've done other dual timelines or multiple point of view narratives before. And um, often what I would do is I would write sequentially as it would appear in the book. And I might write a few chapters ahead in one voice just to keep momentum going. Um, but I would generally stay in my lane. I would write as it's going to appear in the book. And for this one, I wrote all of Lisette's narrative first. And then I wrote all of Micheline's narrative. And then, you know, I mixed in the, the recipes and what have you. And my big worry throughout the entire thing was that the two narratives wouldn't mesh well once I started interweaving them. And I honestly think it was more success- it was um, successful without having to tinker too much because the stories had a natural rise and fall at the same time, yeah. um, because they are both dealing with post-war, uh, you know, they're both dealing with conflict and the resolution of that conflict, um, and so there, there's a balance to the stories that played each, off each other quite nicely. Well, I thought it worked really well. I'm assuming, yeah. tell me if I'm right about this, that, that segue becomes important, that, you know, like a seed that's in one chapter has to have some reference to the next chapter in order for there to be a good segue between the, the dual narratives. 
Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And so um, there were times when I made sure that I was, you know, threading the needle, so to speak, right, and making sure that, you know, the seams between the chapters made sense and that there was a continuity throughout the story. But it did happen kind of organically, which was lovely. I didn't have to go in and shoehorn transitions in between the chapters, um, apart from adding in the recipes, which really did tie the two together. Right. But that's for, you know, not throughout the entire book. Um, they started about, I would want to say about the quarter mark, the yeah. 25% yeah. mark is where they start. But they do kind of act as a bridge between the two narratives. Yeah. Okay. Well, what research did you have to do on these two different time periods to make sure that, you know, you understood them and that the historical references you were putting in were accurate? Um, well, you know, it was amazing because I didn't, um, because I was writing this book largely in late 2021 and early 2022, and international travel wasn't quite possible yet. So I wasn't able to go do a lot of archival research on, on the spot or on site rather. And so what I would do is um, I started off, especially for the 1870 timeline, which was a time period I was less familiar with, um, I started off with a really solid um, secondary resource called uh, Massacre by John Merriman, which is a wonderful book mm-hmm. all about the events leading up to uh, the Paris Commune. The, the, uh, so that would be the, 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 the siege of Paris and then the Franco-Prussian War itself and the then the rise of the Paris Commune and the aftermath. And then, of course, I data mined all the, you know, the bibliography to find all the primary sources and was able to find a lot of firsthand accounts of life during the commune and the, the time working up to the commune that were really, you know, kind of pivotal moments in French history that we don't hear as much about. Right. We hear so much about World War II. Obviously, we hear a lot about the French Revolution, but the period in between was really a fascinating period, um, you know, those hundred and some odd years. Um, and I think the the Paris Commune w- is not given its due in uh, a lot of our history courses because it really was the rise, uh, it was the end of the French monarchy. And yeah. we, we mm-hmm. attribute that to the French Revolution, but there was a monarchy again 12 years later. But the reprisal against the Paris Commune, which was the people of Paris rising up to govern themselves and saying, we've had enough of this inept rule from an emperor. We want to take care of ourselves. Um, The reprisal against that government was so swift that even the people that weren't in favor of the Paris Commune thought that the Versailles, the opposing forces, went too far. And because of that, they never had a monarchy again. And so learning about that was absolutely fascinating. And for the post-World War II period, it really was, you know, a lot of my research focused on the Red Cross efforts um, helping people to find uh, missing loved ones, because you can imagine that was a huge problem after World War II. Um, And people who went missing, and what do their families do if they can't get access to their bank accounts, for example? And so a lot of my research focused on that. Um, And I was able to find some great resources online, which was wonderful, because, um, again, traveling to the Red Cross would have been a challenge at that point in time. Um, but, you know, it was it, we're, it came together. The research came together really well, despite the difficulties of not being able to travel. And I was happy with how it turned out on that regard. Yeah, well, I, I think actually, and I think this is a sign of good historical fiction, is when you read it, you're stirred to try to find more or to learn more about the time periods. And that, that certainly was oh, true absolutely. with this book. Yeah. All right. So. The book revolves around, principally around two characters, Lizette, 
who is at there who is at the bakery in 1870 and her great granddaughter Micheline who's there in 1946 both women it seemed to me are dealing with loss but in different ways correct mm-hmm. absolutely and that was done deliberately because you know the <clears throat> the book has to do with basically recovery from war mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to show that even the victors and, uh, you know, in the Franco-Prussian War in the Paris Commune, Lisette was on the losing side. Right. And Micheline was on the, the side of the victors in World War II. But both women suffered great loss. So it really doesn't matter if you win or lose. There's a price to be paid for war on either side. And so that was done very deliberately. Okay. Well, now, writers will often tell me that if they create a good character— that character actually helps write the book. Did you find that to be true with Lizette oh. and Micheline? And if so, in what uh, ways? Yeah, well, Micheline, I mean, the stakes were so high. You know, we talk so often about making sure that the stakes for your character are so high. And, you know, Micheline isn't just worried about her own, you know, filling her own stomach and <clears> making <throat> sure that, her, you know, that she's surviving she has to provide for her two younger siblings, right. and she doesn't want to just make sure that they're fed and clothed and not embarrassed. She wants them to have some advantages in life. And so that pressure that she that is put on her shoulders at the tender age of 19, I think, makes for great stakes. And so I understood, you know, having spent some time as a single mother, the pressure that she was under. Mm-hmm. And I was nothing like 19. I was in my 40s. But, um, you know, she... Uh, you know, I could resonate, I could feel, you know, her struggle resonated in my soul. And mm-hmm. so I was able, I think, pretty easily to to depict her struggles on the page because she was very open with me about how hard it was for her because she didn't want to just, you know, do her best to make sure that they scraped through. She wanted to give the, her sisters some advantages in life, uh, you know, to, to mm-hmm. be, you know, to honor the commitments her parents had made to raising three daughters. She didn't want to let them down. Right. Definitely. All right, yeah. so but writers will tell me again that when they create a character, they actually live with that character. I know that sounds funny to some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the time period they're writing the book, is that was that true for you with Lizette and Micheline, that you kind of on oh, a day-to-day absolutely. basis live with them? Yeah, and, you know, I, I mentioned just a minute ago that Micheline was very open with me, and yeah. I talk often as though it's a dialogue, uh-huh. and it does feel like a dialogue. And, you know, Lizette was really trying to find herself and to – reconcile herself in a world that, you know, because she was a young woman of privilege Mm -hmm. and she gets exposed to these new ideas when she meets a national guardsman and realizes that the series, you know, the morals and the, the, the guidelines that she's been raised with don't necessarily match up with what she finds to be, uh, you know, just and moral for Mm -hmm. her own moral code. And so, you know, her struggle is all about finding her uh, a life that she can uh, after if that a life that she will live that will allow her to look at herself in the mirror. Yeah. yeah. And um you know and that it's all about her, you know, navigating this world that isn't what she thought it was. Right. And the struggles and sometimes she wants to turn back because her life had been very easy and she has to grapple with that and I I felt that very keenly, you know, um there was a lot of security in the life that she had with her parents. And, um, you know, she had to leave behind her a brother and a sister that she cared about. And there was a lot of sacrifice there. But at the end of the day, is it worth sacrificing what she believes in to go back to it? And so I definitely felt like she was in the room. I felt like um, that I could I, I was having conversations with her and with Micheline as well, because, you know, it was the very much the struggle of a single mother trying to figure out where the next meal is coming from. Yeah. And what she's going to do 
to so that she's not living meal to meal because uh, we talk about paycheck to paycheck. Um, it got to the point where it would have been meal to meal for her yeah. and her sisters if she hadn't figured out a solution. Yeah. Well, both yeah. ladies come to running the bakery because that's that's a centerpiece of the story in very mm-hmm. different ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for Lisette, and this is you know kind of the theme. She had a tremendous amount of agency, <laughs> and so she's able to trade off some of her privilege in the form of an engagement ring that she had right. in order to buy the bakery. And it's her choice. She starts it, and she is able to make something that it will be of service to the neighborhood. And you know uh, we can't overstate the importance of bread in the French yeah. diet, yep. especially in the 19th century and before. It w- people ate bread every day. Whatever else they ate was incidental, but bread was every single day. And the people in Montmartre, they, we, let's remember that you know this is you know it was at one point considered a village outside of Paris, even though it's been swallowed up by Paris proper now. And it was definitely part of Paris at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Um, Definitely not as wealthy and uh, and privileged as the center of the city, and so there were people that may have had to walk a half an hour one way to buy bread every day. And her opening up that bakery is a form of, you know, she wanted to help the neighborhood without offering charity, right. and that was her contribution, so that people didn't have to go so far in order to to get this basic staple in their diet. Right. Now, conversely, Micheline stumbles upon it um, because. Yep. The, the bakery had become a bistro um, when her parents were in charge because they weren't interested in running a bakery because it's a tremendous amount of work. So they'd l- rent that space out to whatever establishment wanted to, to run it. And um, it was a bistro when Micheline was a child. And when it goes vacant and they have that source of income dry up, her neighbor, who had been in the neighborhood for ages, suggests that she take it ba- the, that space back to its roots and open up a bakery. And she struggles with that decision because she enjoys baking on a small scale, and she remembers the recipes that her mother taught her, taught her with great affection. But she really grapples with whether or not that's her calling. And for her, it's all about finding her agency, whereas for Lisette, it's about using her agency. Yeah. Well, in, in Lisette's case, she also has, and I thought this, and I'm going to suggest that this was a wonderful metaphor, she also has some decisions to make concerning the men in her life. And in particular, mm-hmm. what struck me is, uh, as the metaphor is she has a choice between privilege, represented by one gentleman, versus what we might say were her ethics and her beliefs, represented by Theodore. Um, mm-hmm. is that, is that a, am I overstating that? No, I, I think the men, you know, she, she was a woman who had a lot of choice and she's making, uh, you know, the, she, those two suitors, Gaspar and Theodore were, you know, they, they were definitely polar opposites in that one represented, um, comfort, privilege, and respect from, you know, society and the life that her parents had wanted for her. The other one was a harder choice, and it was going to be a, a life of work, a life of struggle, but a life that was close, more closely aligned to what she believed was right. Yeah, yeah. And she became more aware of class struggles, which I think is a, an issue that isn't dealt with quite enough in literature. Um, we talk about, you know, with there's, and rightly so, there is a lot of emphasis on racial struggles and feminist struggles and queer struggles, et cetera, and so forth. And all of that absolutely deserves space on the shelf and, and many shelves. But um, I think class struggle is something that transcends all of those various identity groups. And I would love to see focused on more. And that's kind of been a, a definite a focus of my work as well. Uh-huh. 
All right, so let's talk about these two ladies and, and talk about what you think from a personality standpoint they had in common. I mean, they are related, but mm-hmm. Lizette and Micheline, besides, obviously, you know, they have a lot of ambition in what they end up doing, but how do you see them as being uh, in common? What are the things they have in common, I should say? Um, devotion to family, for certain, um, is, is an important element. Um, even though Lizette does sort of forsake her birth family, um, she has a found family in mm-hmm. her husband and his friends, and eventually um, their family expands. And um, so I think that that, um, and you see that again with Micheline and the extreme devotion that she feels to her sisters. Yeah. And um, whereas, you know, she could have had easier options. She could have found a faster family for her sisters, or she could have gone, you know, looking for help, but she refuses to give up control of her sisters because she knows that it would have broken her mother's heart. Yeah. And so, and we have polar opposites. Um, you have uh, Micheline's mother, who was extremely devoted and a loving mother and very doting um, to her three daughters, whereas um, Lisette was always made to feel a burden mm-hmm. by her her mother. And so you have those polar opposites as well. But I think those um, kind of uh, those disparate experiences for those two women actually give them some common ground, because I think that Lisette would have, you know, realizes that that wasn't the mother she wanted to be. And Micheline realizes that she had an exemplary mother and wants to emulate that. And so I think that they have two disparate experiences that lead to similar outcomes. Okay. Well, food is, in a sense, is a character in the book. Um, There even, as you have mentioned, some recipes. Talk about the role that food plays in their lives and the story. And you've talked a little bit about this already when you talk about the historical aspects. But talk about the role that food plays in their lives. Well, I think that the importance of food is never greater than we're talking about um, when it's in uh, dire shortage, as it was during the siege of Paris. And um, less so during the the Paris Commune was when things were improving because the the Paris is a walled city. And when it's sealed off, it's very hard to get in and out. And that includes supplies. Um, So, yeah, they they ordered all the horses slaughtered in Paris. Mm -hmm. And so the importance of food was definitely in the forefront of everybody's mind during the siege of Paris. And, of course, during World War II, there was extreme rationing and um, a lot a lot of hardship. And so the bakery, even in these times of hardship, is really the cornerstone of French society, Parisian society in particular. It's a place where people would visit daily. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just the place where you go and not like a supermarket for us today where we don't have that kind of emotional attachment. These are, you know, these are small shops where, you know, the people selling you the bread, especially if you're there, you know, you go to the same one every day. There's a lot of loyalty. You have your, you know, when I lived in France, my host parents, they had the bakery they went to every time, every day, unless there was an exceptional closure or there was one day a week that they were closed and they had the alternate bakery. Um, that they didn't prefer to go to, but it was, you know, it was an acceptable substitute. And so there's a lot of loyalty to those places. And I wanted to encapsulate that because it really is a cornerstone of, you know, the French social life, almost like the cafe. Um, and, you know, you, you develop a relationship with the baker. And I know that that was what Lisette wanted to do for that small neighborhood in Montmartre. And the importance of neighborhoods looking out for each other um, is something that is absolutely drawn from history. And mm-hmm. I based the bakery, La Le Bijou, 
on an actual bakery in Montmartre that sadly no longer um, in, it's no longer running. It closed in early 2022, and I missed seeing it by six weeks um, oh. in person. Oh no! Um, but there's a sign in the courtyard, and the the bakery, aside from being a slightly paler shade of green than I depict in the book, is exactly um, you know as it's depicted in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a courtyard just like I described. And there's a sign that is dedicated to the commune of Montmartre, and it was like a neighborhood watch program, but not just for crime. It was like how they would band together, and it's like a small chamber of commerce, um, but promoting the interests of the neighborhood and the small businesses and the schools and all the all those sorts of things. But uh, at the neighborhood level, because you know Paris being such a vast city. Um, the the smaller, the less affluent arrondissement like Montmartre look, run the risk of being overlooked to the you know the wealthier arrondissement in the middle of the of the city. Yeah. Well, one of the ways that you bind the two time periods together, and I thought this was something everybody could identify with, and bind the two characters together in a way, is through a recipe book, Lizette's mm-hmm. Lizette's, which Micheline finds at some point. All right. Did you know that at the outset of, of writing the story, or is that something that evolved as you wrote the story? Well, I knew that there were going to be recipes included, and uh-huh. I knew that I, they wanted they had to propel the story forward because I know as a reader, um, even though I love to cook, if I see a recipe in a story, I'll just you know I'll skim it, but I'm not. It's it, you know it's something I'll come back to if I want to cook it. Um, but I wanted it to ha- them to have a literary purpose in the story. So there's actual recipe notes from the characters and they, they bear some importance on the plot. And they're actually, for the most part, original Karem recipes that I've just made more literary mm-hmm. and tinkered around with, made them shorter in many cases. Um, to, but then I include notes that the characters would have made, like next time I'm going to try this flavor or I'm going to uh, you know, attempt this, um, you know, I'm going to attempt this sort of um, technique next time. And that was one of the things I actually wrote a recipe and included it for brioche in the proposal for the story because I knew I wanted to include them throughout the course of the book. And I didn't want what I didn't want to do was fall into the trope of, oh, the mystical book that belonged to my great grammar that I find in a trunk and it's going to change the course of my life. Right. Um, I wanted it to be a living document because, mm-hmm. first of all, that whole magic recipe book thing has been done so many times, and it's wonderful, and I love reading it, but I wanted to do something different. And so she does find this recipe book in a trunk in a low moment because she associates the cellar where she finds it with air raids, and it, gives, it sends her into a panic attack going down there. But she finds this recipe book, and it becomes her good luck talisman, and it it is Micheline's way it's her guide into learning how to cook, and whenever a recipe isn't working, she tries to find the recipe in her great-grandmother's book to see if it will help her figure it out. Because there's you know, suggestions and things that aren't going to come from the culinary school where she's um, studying. And, so I, and I wanted it to be a living document, so uh-huh. Michelin starts adding to it throughout the course of the book. Yeah, and I wanted that to be, you know, a living document, and it's not just this mystical, you know, historical archaic document that, um, you know, that is the, you know, kind of Deus ex machina for the whole story. 
it's a talisman and it's um, uh, it's a way to tie the two generations together. Well, it works really well. And I didn't see it as magical at all. I thought it was immediately struck me as something that, look, I'm Sicilian on both sides. So I immediately struck me as something I could identify with. And of course, those type of universal themes are what, what makes for good writing. All right. We, we're going to run out of time in a moment, but I couple, got a couple more questions for you. Sure. All right. So when an author like yourself creates characters, was that... Uh, Michelin, and puts them in different emotional situations, I'm told they often learn something about themselves. What did you learn about yourself in writing this book? Well, you know, I think that um, there, what you see in Michelin, there's a sense of frustration, and she's frustrated that she's left in this predicament to raise children and in, a, in less than ideal situation, and they aren't her kids. It's not like she had the, made the decision to raise her own children, uh, you know, and, and that she's left alone to do it now. These are her siblings, not her own children. Right. Um, but she does have, you know, essentially the burden of a mother now. And I think I did tap upon some of my own frustration of parenting and homeschooling kids during lockdown, mm. because it's something that none of us expected. And it was kind of being shoved into parenting in a more intense you know, scenario than a lot of us were ever expecting, because, again, the whole unprecedented time thing, uh, things. And, you know, I, I think that I drew from some of that frustration with, you know, how am I supposed to teach my kids math and keep writing and, uh, you know, do all this stuff and keep the ship running all by myself. And so I was definitely able to tap on some of that frustration, even though, of course, having children was my own choice. And, I, you know, I, I, what I don't didn't have I wasn't able to relate on that level because they were my, they are my own children and I love having them, but there is still that same sort of frustration. It's like, I didn't sign up to raise parent kids during a pandemic for crying out loud. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let me end with this question. So sure. I will ask folks sometimes why they write and folks will, some folks will say, you know, I write for myself. Others will say to make a social point or a political point, And a few of them will say that do it for the money. Why is it that you write? This is not your first book. You have several other books out that have done well. Why is it that you write? Um, you know, it's funny is that I feel like, you know, I stopped and started writing for about 10 years before I finished my first book. Mm -hmm. And I, I started seriously writing. You know, I picked up the attempt for the final time that would become a successful book um, after my daughter was born. And she was four months old when I really dove back into it. And I think that I wrote for I write for her um, huh. in, in a law in a grander sense of the thing, because there are stories about women and there are stories about women who um, have been misjudged by history, um, because so often the role of women has been marginalized in our history books. And women did not have marginal roles in history. They were you know, were making history right alongside with their husbands and brothers and fathers and sons. And I wanted my daughter to see that and to show her that the world isn't necessarily the, uh, you know, she's bigger than the shoebox that the world wants to shove her into mm -hmm. and hopefully showing her that she has options and choices in this world. And I hope she'll take advantage of all of them. Yeah, an excellent reason. Unfortunately, yeah. that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the writer's forum and I've been privileged to speak with author Amy Runyon about her new book, a bakery in Paris. It's a good one, folks. You should pick it up. Amy, is there a website or other social media site that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and about this book as well as your other books? Yes. If you go to www.amykrunyon.com, you can get access to all of my upcoming projects, my existing projects, 
And on my blog, we have recipes, many of which are derived directly <laughs> from the book okay. that are easier to follow All right, well, than the ones in the novel. All right. For folks, Amy is spelled A-I-M-I-E. Amy Runyon, okay, when you look that up. Amy, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Folks, the music for the show, the intro and the outro, was provided by Valerie Hunt Jester. The show is produced by Tyler O'Brien. Tune in next Tuesday at 4 p.m. or Wednesday at 5.30 a.m. for the next interview on the Writers' Forum.